and what we found is that there's a there's a very large population of workers who um, are on the fringe of the workforce, and they're actually hidden from the view of employers. They're not hiding from work. They're screened off from consideration by employers. And they're screened off by the way companies have designed and executed their approach to uh, soliciting applications and reviewing applicants. I am delighted to introduce my guest today. Joseph Fuller is a professor of management practice in general management at Harvard Business School and co-leads the school's initiative Managing the Future of Work. Together with his colleague, Professor Bill Kerr, Joe co-hosts the podcast Managing the Future of Work. In 1981, graduate of the school, Joe was a founder and first employee of the global consulting firm Monitor Group, now Monitor Deloitte. He served as the chief executive officer of its commercial consulting operations from 1994 to 2006 and remained a senior advisor until its acquisition by Deloitte in 2012. During his three decades in consulting, Fuller served clients in a wide variety of industries, especially those with a heavy reliance on technology. He has particularly deep experience in life sciences, ICT, and the defense and aerospace industries. Welcome to the show, Joe. My pleasure, Karen. Delighted to join you. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Now, we have listeners from all over the world. Could you tell us where are you calling in from and is there any particular site or food in your area? Well, I'm calling from my very messy office at the Harvard Business School. And uh, I have a ground floor office that looks out at a very pretty garden and seating area where many of the students gather when the weather is mild. And uh, close to the campus of UIC every day are uh, the boathouses for the rowing on the Charles River. And um, I've had many friends who uh, have rowed on this river for different schools, uh, specifically for Harvard, including my three sons. So I always enjoy seeing the, the scholars and, and oarsmen on the water and, and um, uh, going by what are uh, splendid old uh, early 20th century boathouses. That sounds so pretty. Um, so you are professor of management practice and co-head of Managing the Future Project at Harvard Business School. Could you tell our listeners more about the Managing the Future of Work project? Well, I'd be happy to. Uh, it's been in, par in, in place in a couple of different incarnations for about 10 years. It started as part of a broader project on the competitiveness of the U.S. economy that was launched after the Great Recession. And when I joined the faculty about 10 years ago, uh, one of the issues that that project had left uh, untended was the question of the skills of the U.S. workforce and uh, the, the talent pipeline in the United States, although I wouldn't have called it that back then. So I um, 
uh, volunteer to take that on. Uh, had I known how complicated it was, I would have, I would have probably picked something simpler like uh, world peace or curing cancer. Um, but um, I started to study it, and then uh, it became a, a big enough part of that project that our dean at the time, Nathan Noria, uh, asked if if how what we'd think about making it its own project. Uh, and um, at that time, I was joined by Professor Bill Kerr as my co-head, and we've been working together for a number of years as a separate project now. The idea, Karen, originally was that when you look at a lot of the, the data available and the uh, scholarly work, uh, publications on work, they're very much oriented toward the supply side. How many university graduates are you generating and what fields of study, what percentage of um, your workforce is not participating in work, uh, how many so-called needs, neither in employment, education, or training are, do you have, uh, how is technology affecting the prospects of workers. And being the Harvard Business School, we thought, and I knew from my work as a consulting CEO as well, that there were, there's quite a lot going on on the demand side, how companies, how executives thought about their workforces, what their concerns were, uh, how that was influencing outcomes for people. So we wanted to set out to be able to talk to our constituency leaders around the world, primarily in business, but also in the public sector and the philanthropic sector, uh, about what were the issues they had to understand in thinking about the future of their workforce or the future of social benefits or the future of the education programs or the future of philanthropy, what were the broad considerations they had had to take in mind and how, how they would combine in different ways to influence future outcomes. And um, that's led us in lots of directions, skills, um, immigration and, and skilled immigration flows, uh, technology, the care economy and how caregiving obligations affects workforce participation, especially for women, uh, the development of uh, various marketplaces uh, to allow companies to source talent directly and not, not rely on intermediaries. So it's been a, a great journey and, and happily um, has become a subject of very considerable importance to people. So, so um, I am not the lonely academic slaving away in my, in my library somewhere. I get to talk to people like yourself about these issues, uh, which is always a pleasure. I'm really appreciative that you have focused on so many so important topics. And in particular, as you have just mentioned, I am a very big proponent in raising more awareness about care work and the implications of it on the um, broader economy and business as a whole. And so I'd like to um, move on to my next question because you have recently co-authored the report, Hidden Workers Untapped Talent. And uh, you know, could you tell our listeners more details about this? Well, Karen, we, I was got interested a number of years ago, just actually just before COVID started, in this question of who were uh, the people that were either on the fringes of employment, uh, for example, people in part-time work who were seeking full-time work, or more importantly, who were the people behind 
the decline we were seeing in workforce participation in the United States. Uh, we have a, a, a kind of a hidden crisis in the United States in the form of several million, uh, probably on the order of 8 million, what are called prime working age males who are neither in education or employment or incarcerated. So they are at liberty to work. They are not working. They are not seeking work and they are not getting training or, or, or educational credentials that would allow them to seek work. Similarly, a women's workforce participation in the United States crested in the early 2000s. And while it hasn't fallen as dramatically as male workforce participation, it has fallen. And uh, U.S. workforce participation now is around 61.5%. Uh, that's a historic low. Uh, and it's, it's at historic lows across most demographic cohorts. So when you look at people in their 30s and compare to the previous generations of 30-year-olds or 40s or 50s. So it's, it's, it's really a chronic problem in the United States. And since the U.S. workforce is not going to grow appreciably on its own, at least uh, with legal workers. Um, the um, changing the workforce participation rate is going to be critical to having enough talent with the right skills in the U.S. Unless you're prepared to give the U.S. Uh, credit that it'll come up with a sensible and well-executed uh, immigration policy in the foreseeable future and. And if you believe that, I'd be happy to sell you one of the bridges that I happen to own that crosses across the Charles River nearby. Um, so I wanted to understand that. And what we found is that there's a, there's a very large population of workers who um, are on the fringe of the workforce, and they're actually hidden from the view of employers. They're not hiding from work. They're screened off from consideration by employers, and they're screened off by the way companies have designed and executed their approach to uh, soliciting applications and reviewing applicants. What happens is the people who have one or more attributes that the employers indicated are either a basis to exclude them from consideration. Uh, that might be anything from not having a university degree to having a criminal record or to rank um, a candidate higher or lower based on various attributes they have. It could be keywords when they describe their historical experience. Uh, it could be uh, years of experience. Uh, it could be something as simple uh, as whether or not they've been continuously employed. About half of American companies will exclude a candidate. That just means they're no longer considered irrespective of their other attributes if they've had a, a career gap of more than six months in the last three or four years. Um, and so all of these conditions, these ranking and filtering mechanisms have the habit of knocking people out of the consideration set. Um, and that creates a very large population of people who aren't being seen as candidates, even though they often have many of the skills and attributes that employers are seeking. They have one or, or, or several um, attributes that the employer find to be 
unattractive, not something that they, they want to um, they want to have in a candidate relative to other candidates. That's an important distinction that employers aren't saying, I would rather not employ someone than employ someone without a university degree. They're just saying, if I have candidates with university degrees and those without, I think I'd prefer one with a university degree. If I have candidates with a criminal conviction and those without, I prefer someone without a criminal conviction. So this system has become very ossified and very rote. And it also becomes self-fulfilling because once you're outside the workforce, first of all, that clock is running on the six months, but also you're not you're not adding experiences, skills, those key words that the natural language processing and the AI system at the front end of the applicant tracking systems look for. Therefore, you, you look less and less attractive to the next employer that you apply to. It also has the corrosive effect of discouraging people from continuing to apply. If the, the average hidden worker um, uh, gets a job offer, uh, 1.7% of the time uh, that they apply for a position. It, you know, it is so interesting. Just yesterday, I talked to a gentleman who has an engineering degree and um, worked for the military and is now a stay-at-home dad and has been one for seven mm. years. And basically what you just said, if he were to reapply based on that criteria of the six months gap, he would automatically fall yes. out despite all of his background and what he told me, all of the different skills he has been learning during that seven years of stay at mm-hmm. home, um, you know, dad, like, and, and not only like he has used transferable skills from the military to use it as being a stay at home dad and then vice mm-hmm. versa, he could use that transferable skills he learned as being a stay-at-home dad in a future, um, you know, position. But as you said, you know, it would be hard, if not impossible, for him to actually um, return based on AI. Yes, and and uh, you also touch on on um, a, a couple of interesting considerations. There, there are probably about 20 discrete categories of hidden workers. One, as, as you were just suggesting, are caregivers. So uh, they could be uh, women or men, primarily women taking a career break for, for rearing young children. Uh, could be someone in the so-called sandwich generation who's got both seniors they're looking after, parents, in-laws, other relatives, other uh, friends or children, and that um, and children at the same time. So they're caught in the sandwich of seniors and, and young dependents. Uh, but uh, people with backgrounds in the military, specifically veterans, are, are a large category of human workers. Um, that's you may ask, well, how could that be? Because obviously they've they've gained skills in the military and 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 the both important uh, so-called social or soft skills, uh, command presence, the ability to make quick decisions, to communicate spontaneously, effectively, as well as potentially hard skills or technical skills, but. The language that a veteran uses to describe what they did in the military and veterans are very unusual populations. They're very, very specific in the military. You don't exaggerate what you did. You don't say you did things that, well, maybe you saw other people do, but you didn't really do them. Um, that um, the the natural language processors read the military skills. They, 
these are not the skills of an account that I'm looking for in an account manager. I'm looking for in a frontline supervisor in a business or in a in a food service establishment because um, the syntax is different. Uh, and um, uh, this, as I said, becomes a, a, a perpetual problem because the, the never it's never been truer maybe what your parents once told you mine certainly told me on a couple of occasions that the easiest way to get a job is to have a job and that's never been truer because with the velocity of change and work processes not just technology but technology important as well if you're out of the workforce for any kind of extended period let's say quarters in duration if not years the likelihood that now you are putting N minus one generation skills or N minus two generation skills or what you're offering goes up dramatically. Average software programmer jumps to a new platform every 2.4 years. So if you start, if you, if, if you were, um, you know, highly competent in, uh, in a programming language or with a, uh, a smart system or, or even advanced tooling in 2019, there's a re- probably a 50% chance that the employers move beyond that by 2021, by the year end 2021. Uh, now, I was very amused in the, in the um, pandemic that program, programming languages that I used to program in as a young man, like BASIC and Focal and Fortran were in demand because people needed to update uh, old administrative systems and databases that were written in those. So I could have reverted to, to my first paying job, but, but uh, happily I get, I get to sit in the ivory tower now and I don't have to spend my day uh, uh, tickling keys and, and trying to remember how to avoid programming a do loop. Yeah, I remember reading about this and I thought that was amazing. Um, Now, um, just to go back to um, your report. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, so what what are the recommendations of your report? that has come, have come out? Well, the, the first is, and I would say this is a constant, uh, Karen, in, in my writing, really what we try to do is say to both policymakers and executives, here are some questions you want to ask yourself, and, and here's the type of data you want to get to decide how, whether and how you might respond. So the first question we're saying to, to employers is, how satisfied are you with the quality and quantity and and the cadence with which talent presents itself to you? And frankly, how qualified are you with the people you end up hiring today using your current processes? And what you find very broadly across sectors, across regions of the country, is companies are increasingly unhappy with the quantity and quality of who's applying and the pace at which they apply. So it's taking longer to fill jobs. And when you ask them, they say, and you know, a number of the people we hire really aren't fit for purpose when they show up. And either we end up not keeping them or we have to remediate what they're lacking. So you've got this this dual-headed monster of, I can't find the talent I need, and the way I'm finding talent now isn't really meeting my need. Well, the, you know, I, don't, I don't think you have to be a professor, say it from the Harvard Business School, say, that doesn't sound like very good management. 
So maybe we ought to be rethinking how we go about this. And that's doubly important today, because as I mentioned earlier, the demographics of the U.S. workforce are changing. They're not as unattractive as the major countries in Western Europe or, or certainly Korea or Japan or Russia, which are going to be uh, having negative growth in their working age populations. Um, and China will be in about by about 2035. Uh, China's already actively demobilizing workers as their retirement rate goes up uh, and it are only being replaced by a cotter of workers who were from the one child policy era. So I'm afraid the uh, Communist Party of China didn't think ahead in terms of the systems effects of, of suddenly artificially constraining the growth of the workforce. Um, what we've said to companies is you need to think about opening the aperture on how you recruit. But to open the aperture and find more candidates, you also have to revisit how you're evaluating applicants. Specifically, that what companies should consider doing is identifying one or more of these various groups of hidden workers and developing programs targeted at creating a talent management pipeline that brings people from that working population into your workforce, causes it, takes down the blinders, gets them front and center for consideration. A quick example um, would be eliminating university degree requirements for jobs where people can demonstrate they have the requisite skills that are actually important to success. Uh, I have some research coming out in January that will show that employers largely use university degrees as proxies that, that they infer a candidate with a college degree will have certain types of skills by transitivity. College degree, probably a good communicator. Uh, college degree, probably good self-efficacy, good energy level. College degree, able to learn things when challenged to learn them. I'm sure that's true of a lot of college graduates, but I don't think it's universally true. More importantly, I think it's not universally true that people without college degrees don't have those attributes. Similarly, caregivers. Um, if you can create a program for caregivers that, that acknowledge uh, or for jobs that allow them to plan their time to fit their personal schedule as opposed to punch in at nine, punch out at five, then you can suddenly open the talent pools that are available to you. And what our research shows is that companies that have done that in the US, the UK, and Germany, we looked at three major markets with quite different patterns of labor market regulation, different levels of social spending and benefits, by the way, but roughly similar economies. By by what we saw is the companies that have set up such programs report that the workers that come out of those programs are significantly less likely to turn over, more productive, more engaged in their work, more loyal to the company than their, the people hired through the traditional system.
So this is not a call for companies to engage in some elaborate corporate social responsibility and they should feel bad about themselves, that they're not hiring veterans or bad about themselves, that they're not uh, hiring people with criminal convictions. This is clear-eyed, hard-nosed business logic. The return on investment for this type of program is excellent. And it's a replacement for some of the um, sources of talent that you yourself as employer confess are not meeting your needs. As I feel so strongly for the care workers that they are, as you said, are hidden, are invisible, I really hope that reports like yours will raise much more awareness and make people, um, business leaders realize that it is in their financial best interest to really start focusing on a much more diverse workforce. And yeah, so so I'm super appreciative that you put you know, this report and research together so that there is real data behind it for um, leaders to look at. Well, thank you. We were excited to get it out there and we've been very gratified by the response of employers and policymakers. And very interestingly, of the tech companies that provide the type of systems we're talking about. You know, the, those technology companies are saying, um, we understand that these systems have this effect. Uh, they, th- this, it, it's not the system that, that has the effect, it's way what the system is asked to do. You're saying to us, you should cause the system to seek different attributes, what I call affirmative filters. Tell me what you really need to be able to do or what experiences you need to have that actually correlate with success of other human beings in the job. Not a lengthy laundry list from a job description that was originally written in 1995, where you've just thrown in some more adjectives and nouns and changed the acronyms or names of software programs or regulation or whatever it is the job has to deal with. And um, and so uh, it's, it's been very gratifying that they're seeing as an opportunity to improve the way their technology works and be of greater service to their customers as opposed to having a very defensive and negative reaction, which they might very well have done because the many readers will, will read our work and say, well, shouldn't these companies have figured this out on their own? They're just doing what their, their customers say, like any responsive vendor, and maybe we can provoke customers to ask them to do different things and they can, they can add features that'll help both employers and aspiring workers. I will be sure to put the link to your report in the show notes so people who would like to learn more about the details in it who are listening to us right now can do that. Thank you. You're very welcome. And now I'd like to go back. We've started to touch a little bit on social skills and care work. And you um, have written a, a, a recent working paper called The Demand for Executive Skills. And I'm quoting here, the conclusion was that the data show an increasing relevance of social skills in top managerial occupations and a greater emphasis, sorry, emphasis on social skills in larger and more information intensive organizations. And so what I'm trying to understand and what I personally find sometimes frustrating is here we are seeing that there is clearly a demand for 
leaders and senior leaders to learn more social skills. On the other hand, you have hidden workers who practice day in and day out for years exactly these social skills. And it's exactly what the World Economic Forum mentions as the top you know, 10 skills like empathy, like time management and, you know, and um, patience. But at the same token, you know, it when somebody applies, even besides the fact that there is a gap, um, it isn't viewed, I feel, as the same skill, even though it's been practiced for so long. So my question is, how can we maybe normalize that or standardize it or make it better known? Well, this is a, a very complex topic. The paper that, that you're referring to is, is, of course, targeted on the market for very senior executives. Right. Uh, and and um, what it shows is that, as you indicated, social skills are gaining considerable um, emphasis in the way companies look for senior talent. That is true more broadly. So my colleague at, at Harvard Kennedy School of Government, Professor David Deming, uh, who co-heads a, a different project uh, on, on the future of work with me called the Project on Workforce at Harvard. Um, he's written uh, extensively and, and very widely cited research that social skills are becoming a more important component of jobs at all levels of wages and are associated with jobs that are gaining market share in the entire marketplace for jobs and grow compensation at a faster rate than average. So, you know, so social what so why are social skills so important? They're, they're important because machines don't emote. Machines don't think about causation. They can't. Machines don't um, uh, understand anomalous circumstances. And while they're getting better at some of those things, for example, causation, uh, they're still far, far behind gray matter and their processing power. Historically, these have been uh, skills that are hard to assess. So uh, over the great length of history, uh, certainly the last 50 to 75 years in labor markets, companies have increasingly relied on proxies to infer whether someone has good social skills. Think back to what I was saying about what an employer might attribute to someone with a college degree versus someone without a college degree. We are beginning to have some uh, tools uh, that give people uh, greater insight into the the social and soft skills of candidates. And very importantly, by the way, give people who are thinking about applying for a job a better sense of what the job requires. One of the things we see very regularly in the labor market, especially in, in lower wage jobs, is that often people get a credential to do a job, but when they actually get in the workplace, they don't like it. They don't enjoy it, or maybe even they're not very good at it. Because moving, let's say, from a community college offered course on advanced manufacturing to an actual advanced manufacturing plant is a little bit like going from reading the newspaper in the reading room at your local library to trying to read it on a subway car. It's a completely different experience. Uh, and so there are some very innovative companies, Pymetrics, for example, which takes uh, demonstrated, proven uh, academic studies about cognitive sciences and, and uh, uh, behavioral economics and turns those into 
measurement tools that people can apply to candidates, skill set from Israel, which uh, puts workers through simulations of work situations, both so they can see how did I like that, if that's what workers really like, and the employer can see how did they do after doing four of these simulations row, did they get better, how do they compare to other people who have gone through the simulation. Um, but the, the work will become more human over time because technology is excellent at doing routine work with defined specifications. And that's a big part of day-to-day -day work still in the United States. Um, the phenomenon I'm talking about is also one that we have to be very cognizant of because it's had the effect to date of carving out a lot of the middle range of jobs. So we have more and more of a barbell-shaped distribution of work in the United States with high-paid high cognitive jobs, highly credentialed at one end of the income spectrum, and then lots of lower wage, uh, lower skills requirements, service-oriented jobs. And um, to reverse that, we have to, we have to be getting people more opportunities to, to get on career pathways that rely on their human skills as much as their technical skills. Uh, and we have to make sure that we're not excluding people uh, from consideration for jobs, that therefore the absence of candidates leads companies to automate out of existence. You know, one of the things a lot of my friends and legislators, le legislatures don't really seem to understand is if a company has a, a need for a certain type of work to get done and it can't find qualified workers to do that work, that company doesn't throw up its hands and says, oh, I guess we'll give up our strategy. Oh, I guess we'll just wait till whenever these people are available. No, they make alternative arrangements. It could be doing the work in India. It could be uh, automating the work away. It could be breaking the work down into three lower skill jobs, none of which have much future. So um, social skills are going to be more paramount. We have to learn a lot better how to assess them. And we have to learn a lot better how to create jobs that allow people to, to grow by putting those skills to work. Absolutely, yes. And, and so what I'm very curious about, you know, talking about soft skills, um, they are, across the world, I feel, there is an emphasis to put um, more female professionals or female students into STEM-related, um, you know, jobs or profession as a whole. But I have not really seen the opposite to be true, especially as you are saying, you know, the soft skills will become more and more apparent and important. I haven't seen even like in high school that, you know, more male students are being taught or incentivized to maybe go into a career of, say, education or caring. And like I look at, say, Norway, where they have a much higher percentage of preschool teachers who are male. And so by children being in a preschool, they kind of see just from going there day to day that say caring and soft skills is basically anybody can have. It's a very interesting point out, Norway, Finland, Sweden, um, to qualify for consideration as a teacher, you often have to be in the top one third of your university class. That's actually the rule in Finland and Sweden. 
they are well-paid, well-respected jobs relative to the way uh, certainly K through 12 teachers are compensated and viewed socially in the United States. Soft skills and social skills are very difficult to nurture. Most of them are actually imparted in childhood and reflect everything from family circumstances to, to the neighborhood you you grew up in and and uh, the type of social interactions they beget the, the fabulous famous work of of my colleague here at Harvard Rav Chetty uh, has really demonstrated quite a lot of those those things that that someone that grows up in a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of social assets and engagement as a child and then later in childhood moved to a neighborhood that has much more of that kind of um, uh, vibrant social environment is safe is, has got cultural institutions or whatnot their outcomes will go up relative to kids that stayed in the original neighborhood so there are an awful lot of factors here one thing i will say karen that um women traditionally uh significantly outperform men on social skills evaluation at least the traditional evaluation and i suspect all your uh women in your audience are saying, you know, I had to hear that from a Harvard professor. Everyone knows that. Um, some of the men might be a little stunned to hear that. Uh, the, the, but what is, um, uh, what I will say is that we don't, throughout the educational experience, having stipulated that what happens in the home and the community is very important for social skills development, we don't approach teaching in, in K through 12 through the, with an added lens of how are we cultivating people's social skills? How we may not make them have brilliant set of social skills, but drawing out what they do have. If you're teaching geometry, you think about teaching theorems and postulates. If you're teaching English, you're thinking about teaching uh, writing skills, uh, interpretation of literature, diction, grammar. You don't sit there and say, I need to be also teaching spontaneous oral communication. I need to be teaching negotiation. I need to be teaching teamwork and role-playing in teams. So a challenge I've given a number of, of governors and, and skills councils and states and, and some departments of education is let's start talking about that at the, at the level of curriculum and lesson planning. So if we're teaching biology, we're not going to let the students pick their own lab teams. In fact, we're going to very consciously put people in groups that I've never seen talk, talking before and after class, I've never seen them sitting at the same lunch table. Um, we're going to cause people in our social studies classes, English, history, to have to write at least once or twice a week, 250 words spontaneously, every week. If, if you start doing that, you will get, you'll help people reinforce and build on those social skills they're cultivating in their home and get more comfortable with the actual requirements of future work. And it, some educators will push back me, say K through 12 and, and universities or community colleges are not employment training schemes, Professor Fuller, and it's not, we're not on the planet to create useful workers for the capitalist system. Well, true enough. I, I don't think you have to be about that, but I do think you need to be about creating useful citizens who have a future 
and will be able to provide for themselves to the greatest degree of, of their capability. And all the things we're talking about will be increasingly important and deterministic of how, whether people get on pathways, whether it's in, uh, in, in the business world, in the public sector, in the not-for-profit sector, or just as citizens and neighbors that will allow them to be successful and, and lead productive lives and, and be productive um, citizens. Thank you. That's so important. Yes. And now, you know, we've talked quite a bit about social skills caring. You have also co-authored the survey report, The Caring Company, and have written an article about whole family care. And so I would love it if you could please provide our listeners with some details on that research and some of the findings. Well, happily. Um, so Caring Company started um, as really emerged, Karen, as a function of some of my conversations with large companies where they were specifically bemoaning the fact that when they go to university today uh, and hire, they're often hiring in roughly equal proportion men and women graduates to come into their companies. But when they look at the attrition rate uh, as those um, uh, new workers start advancing up the company, that they have a much higher attrition rate with young women. And what could they do about this? Uh, this is, by the way, particularly important consideration in, in jobs that do have the grief or higher educational attainment, because women are an absolute majority of uh, every level of post-secondary education in the United States. University enrollees, master's programs, medical doctors, PhD programs. They're not an absolute majority of every program. So there are 70 to 80% of romance language PhD candidates are women, only 20% of computer science PhD candidates are women, but um, all in across the board, an absolute majority. And by the way, that's true in the UK. That's true in France. It's true in India. So this is a higher educational attainment is increasingly a female domain. And if you are a company that needs workers with those skills, you better figure this out. Now, so when I started looking at it, what became apparent, and once again, hardly something that uh, you needed to get a Harvard professor on your show to tell most of your listeners is the family consideration caregiving are a big determinant of workforce participation for women and increasingly, by the way, for men. I then went about asking employers, what to, to what extent do you think caregiving concerns affects the productivity of your workforce. And I was quite surprised, although it, it ended up making for good reading in my paper, that less than 75% of companies thought that that had any impact whatsoever on their workforce, which was amusing because 88% of workers said that their, caregive, their caregiving responsibilities affected their productivity and attendance almost or some of the time. And um, similarly, I, we looked into how that factors into people's selection of for whom to work. And um, we looked at who has left jobs because of inability to reconcile the demands of work with their caregiving obligations. 
And we found that over a third of workers had left at least one job because of an inability to reconcile that. We also looked at it through the lens of the level and earnings power of the workers. And uh, we split the, the workforce into quartiles and looked into who turns over at the highest rate. And when I have an audience of business people and we're talking about this research, very frequently just ask them to guess who, what quartile of your workforce, bottom quartile, number three, number two, or your top quartile in terms of title and compensation is most likely to leave your employment because they can't manage their personal caregiving circumstances and keep the job. Inevitably, a significant majority says it's the bottom quartile, the fourth quartile, and is in fact distinctly the top quartile. More than twice as likely than the bottom quartile to do so. So your highest paid, presumably most strategically important workers are disproportionately likely to leave your employee if the conditions that you impose on them through the job description, measurement system, structure of work, oblige them to make a choice between acquitting their caregiving responsibility to the, in the fashion they choose to versus doing a good job. There are a lot of specific recommendations in, in that white paper, but several of them include that companies actually should try to understand their care demographics because different regions and different, different careers, uh, by the way, companies often say, well, isn't that a HIPAA violation? It is not remotely a HIPAA violation. You will have auditing your benefits to see which are actually getting used. Very often companies have rebutted what I've said by saying, well, Joe, it, it sounds like you're advocating a lot of new care benefits, but we don't think that's wise. And we know that because our current care benefits aren't widely utilized. Then you ask them what their current care benefits are. And it's, oh, we have unpaid leave for family medical crisis. Well, that's a very attractive you know, you'll have a family food and rent crisis following the metal crisis with unpaid leave, or we allow people to donate their vacation days to help a uh, co-worker who has um, a caregiving issue um, extend, use their vacation days to take care of it. You know, it's easy to make these things sound ridiculous, you know, on a podcast, you know, speaking in a slightly dismissive tone of voice. But that's a fairly ridiculous benefit. I'm sorry. You know, if, if someone's got a crisis, give them the bloody vacation days they need to take care of it. And don't start taxing their coworkers you know, to make your budget cleaner. When you get into the specifics, it turns out that it's not that people expect that the companies are going to take on the burden of taking care of my parents or develop a customized intervention for my child that has ADHD or, or my child with a more severe impairment than that, but accommodations, subsidized emergency care coverage, uh, predictability on business travel and business and working hours, not having uh, my business hours always be locked in place. So it's always nine to five, but the ability to work eight to six, because then I can get the kids off to school and my spouse or significant other will come and be there when they get back from school, be there to, to make sure that um, dinner is, is eaten, homework done and, and baths taken. It's things like better information programs. There's a, there's a wonderful uh, company uh, that was started by one of our graduates here uh, with the name Wealthy. It's, um, I must admit, I, I find it a little bit confusing name because to me, I start immediately thinking about 
asset management, right. wealth management, retirement planning, but it actually is is uh, a service that the companies buy where they wealthy provides very knowledgeable case management officers when one of the employees has some kind of health care crisis themselves or their family. So if you work for a company that has wealthy the and you you get a call from your mother that your father has an uh, uh, Alzheimer's diagnosis and you're working in New York and your parents live in Phoenix, you're going to be worried sick. You're going to think you have to get out to Phoenix as fast as possible. You know nothing about how their insurance works. You know nothing about the leading therapists in Phoenix for um, cognitive impairment. You know nothing about what type of planning should go into starting to equip the home to have someone with some cognitive impairment. Wealthy knows all that, and you, a wealthy case officer, steps in and and isn't excluding you from the planning and execution, but doing all that groundwork, understanding what the the insurance coverage, understanding who the best clinicians are, uh, understanding you know, what can be gotten from a, a state or local or federal benefit versus from a private insurer versus what's uncovered. Uh, and, and what are the resources that are vetted and high quality? So th- that is uh, not a terribly expensive service per capita, but you can imagine a critical inflection points in someone's life. That might be something that not only allows you to stay employed, causes you to be immensely loyal to that employer that had that type of quality of service available. So a little innovation here, really understanding what that histogram is of, of care needs and how a company can reasonably participate and just being cognizant that if you've got a junior high school student who's got behavioral issues and you you sit at your desk every day scared to death that the, the guidance counselor or the principal of school is going to call you, you're just not going to be that productive. And if an employer could do something to ease that burden a little bit, or at least acknowledge it, uh, one of the things we say in the report, Karen, I'm almost reading it to you now, so I'll, I'll wrap up with this, is simply having senior executives in the company discuss the care their caregiving experiences and what challenge they're faced. If you sit and say, I had cancer or both my parents had Alzheimer's or, you know, I had a, a family member who had a substance abuse issue. It, making it discussable, making it something that people can feel they can unburden themselves on, just simple things like that can make a huge difference. I can completely agree what you said. The amount of research it would take if you are out of state and trying to help an elderly relative from my own experience It takes enormous amounts of hours and time. So that sounds like a perfect, perfect example of how that could make somebody more loyal to the company. And then also what you said, it's like role models. And I feel that to me is like the higher in the leadership within an organization. And I feel also, to be honest, if it is a male leader that talks about it, I think that's even more important to kind of really make other, maybe more junior leaders feel comfortable to speak out about it. I just want to reinforce that for a second. If you think about the story, companies travel and function, all institutions on stories about themselves. 
And the stories we tell, particularly in business, are stories of how everyone stayed up all night and we put the great proposal together, or, or you know, the CEO, um, you know, sent me to to uh, you know fly to Tokyo at a minute's notice. I had to buy a clean shirt at the airport, and you know, then we troubleshot the the, the problem with our product, and we all ran through walls, or you know, uh, all these metaphors and images we use. It's not the the company elected not to pursue something because uh, the. Uh, uh, the CEO is w- worried about the workload on the staff. It's not, um, you know, the company uh, immediately invested time and effort in finding uh, a resource that could help someone with a unexpected and uh, scary problem with the health of a loved one. I'm not talking about the types of very poignant episodes we hear about when, you know, for example, a child that has some uh, exotic, uh, you know, and serious disease and, uh, you know, work group or a company will rally to their cause. I'm talking about day-to-day things. Uh, and, and um, you know, the company is not so preoccupied with my productivity this day, this hour, this week, uh, as opposed to my having a, uh, a an ongoing relationship with the firm that changes as my 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 caregiving and my personal profile changes, so that that thirty year old worker with the two young kids, one of whom who has uh, Down syndrome, is going to become the fifty year old with the adult a uh, uh, young adult with Down syndrome who might be now living in a group home or in. Um, uh, some point of, of hidden worker type employment scheme. Completely different profile, same person. I need to have the resources to transit those stages of life with that worker if I expect to have a highly productive, engaged, low turnover workforce. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'd like to go back to one aspect that you had mentioned in your report. Um, as you said, that it is the highest percentile of the workers that tend to leave more often because of the struggle of care and work. And as I'm a big proponent of flexible work, in particular of job sharing and top sharing, I truly struggle why it is that in particular in North America, there are not more opportunities for flex, you know, like part-time careers or job sharing and top sharing on like, you know, beyond the entry-level position to ensure that more talent can be retained? Well, it's a very funny situation um, because in any kind of process in the last 50 years, companies have learned that they want to lower the scrap rate, the waste rate. That's the essence of total quality management. And a you know, scrap with personnel is I hired someone who wasn't productive or didn't like the job, or I hired someone who left quickly, or I've got someone who's so distracted that, um, but because they're having such a hard time reconciling what I'm asking to do with what they feel they need to do uh, in their personal lives, that poor person is doing neither thing well. Um, and thinking about how we engage and give workers the best possible chance to be the worker we want requires thinking beyond, here's your here's the job description, here were your 
uh, key objective for the year. And here's your the output of the performance management system relative to your compensation and bonus for next year. That's a very pedestrian, narrow-minded, unsophisticated way to work, the way to look at, at how you create an effective, loyal, low turnover workforce. And turnover is hugely expensive. It's, it's for high-skilled white-collar workers, it can be hundreds of percent of what you pay them annually. The minimum number, even at the lowest edge, edge of, the, of the wage scale, is 20%. Uh, direct cost to replace a person of their annual compensation, but that's the most conservative. And we're not counting impact on the morale of other workers. Uh, we're not talking about the overtime you pay those workers. In the meantime, ruptures in customer relationships, lack of you know knowledge. It's been very hard for companies to fill the gap of people leaving in COVID because uh, the new workers in certainly the Roughly 35% of jobs that can be done remotely have never met their coworkers. They've never been in the office. They haven't sat, you know, in the commissary or, you know, over a cup of coffee and heard the story about when we had to fly to Tokyo overnight or heard the story about even how uh, the the company has this great program called Wealthy that that has been such a you know, such a testimony to the company's commitment to to the workforce um, and. That kind of assimilation is very hard to do on Zoom. So um, minimizing turnover, uh, especially for those jobs that are going to be hard to to uh, replace because of skills and such demand, that, that should be uh, the top three to five objectives for every senior executive. It's a huge driver of cost and performance, but it's not viewed that way because the linkage between those numbers about staff and personnel are, are not directly linked in the minds of too, of many executives to economic outcome and competitive performance. Um, yeah, now, Joe, I could listen to you forever. It's been so interesting and so helpful to hear about all of the um, research you have done and all of your insights. And before we go, I just would like to ask, you know, as I ask my guests a quick question, I'm very curious if you reflect back, what was like one of the most important aspects or recommendations somebody gave you in your own career? Um, well, that's a challenging question. Um, I think the, the one that I've come back to the most in my life is someone who once told me uh, quite early in my career that if someone I was working with or for said something that didn't make sense to me, I should ask myself, why does that make sense to that other person as opposed to how do I set them straight or how could they be so stupid or, you know, uh, are they just completely out to lunch or whatever young and cocksure uh, professional as I was when I was a, a young man might have had as their initial reaction. And uh, that has never failed me. It's I've, I've learned a tremendous amount by reflecting on what was it about the situation, the incentives, the data, uh, the personal circumstances that causes cause someone to take a position that didn't make any sense to me at all. Thank you so much for sharing. Now, how can 
people find you on social media? Uh, well, you're kind to ask. So I'm uh, at Joseph B. Fuller, uh, B as in boy, on Twitter. And I, uh, I similarly on uh, Facebook, you can uh, on uh, LinkedIn, rather, you can find me at Joseph Fuller. Also, uh, Karen, we have two projects websites. One, uh, the Managing the Future of Work website at Harvard Business School, which is easily found by Googling. It has all of my papers and articles. Uh, it has a newsletter you can sign up for. Uh, and also, um, as you know, uh, I am a podcaster too. And so we have about 200 podcasts up there that are searchable. Uh, and similarly, we have a, a one for our project on the workforce at Harvard, uh, which is hosted at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, so either of those can be uh, searched and found and, and uh, you can keep up with where, what we're all about if you're so interested. Thank you so much. And I will be sure to put it all your information into the show notes as well. And now I just wanted to make sure, is there anything that we haven't covered today that you would like to share with our audience? Well, I think that the, the last thing I just might say is that a lot of people are in a big hurry to both define and, and get on with the new normal. Uh, I get that question very frequently from executives. When are we going to get to the new normal? And I say, I don't know. I think you ought to be thinking about a series of next normals. And people ought to be much less determined to decide what the future is going to look like. Companies shouldn't be announcing permanent policy changes. They should be experimenting. They should be labeling things as experiments. They should be telling their workforce they don't know either, as opposed to, uh, and, and they, they should be, uh, and the same goes for legislators. Um, you have a, a lot of, of uh, different activity in different states, for example, to do things like constraining gig work because to a legislature, legislator, gig work sounds like Uber or, or Lyft or DoorDash, and they've decided they don't like that. Well, if you look at polling data from people who work those services, they're very often income supplementary jobs. About 70% of people who do them like them. And also there's an explosion in gig work for the type of digital and scientific and um, computer software talent that's very hard to source, which lots of companies that are not going to be able to hire world-class machine learning specialists or data scientists full-time rely on. And you would inadvertently do great damage to the way the labor market's evolving if you start solving some problem that you defined without understanding the system's effects. So I'd say everyone needs to take a deep breath, understand that life's going to be uncertain for a while, and be very, very cautious about taking rigid or overly deterministic moves before they know what the future is going to look like. Thank you so much, Joe. And thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I so appreciate it. My pleasure. Excited to be with you, Karen. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We hope you gained valuable insights and new ideas. To keep listening to future episodes, please head over to iTunes or your favorite player and subscribe and give it a rating. We would very much appreciate a review and for you to share it on social media so more people can start innovating in how they offer employment. Until the next time, goodbye.